0: Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation... There will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, World War II American Espionage Agent Virginia Hall. Let's pick up our story about Virginia Hall. Checking into a hotel run by supporters of the resistance, Virginia successfully interacted with an individual who provided guides for the rugged passage through the mountains. Finding someone to accompany her would not be easy. In November, the climate was challenging enough, but with the various mountain passages the sole way out of France, Only the most rugged and least accessible routes afforded any chance of success. The guides that provided such a service were essentially smugglers and quasi-criminals who wouldn't hesitate to shoot any customers who fell behind, or, after getting paid, even deliberately double-crossed fugitives by abandoning them in the mountains. Booking passage as a female would be hard enough. Virginia didn't dare tell anyone about her prosthesis. In response, her contact informed her that she would have to wait for two other men to raise the money to travel with her. In desperation, she agreed to pay 50,000 francs for all three of them. There was no time to lose. Back in Lyon, the Germans were already flooding the city, intent on rooting out Marie, and it was only a matter of days or even hours until they seized control in Perpignan. After hiding out in her hotel for two days, Virginia was finally picked up in the middle of the night by a van containing her guide and two other fugitives, a Jewish Pole named Leon Gutman and a wanted Frenchman, Jean-Alibert. Virginia handed over 25,000 francs. The rest was to be paid after they made it to the other side. The van took them as far as the town of villefranche de Conflats in the foothills of the mountains. There, the three slept in a barn. They would start their ascent, a projected 50-mile hike at dawn, accompanied by their guide, Juan, the trek rising 5,000 feet in the first 12 miles. Virginia carried a rucksack containing bare essentials and documents she could not leave behind. With freezing cold winds, the snow was yards deep at points, the remote narrow trail bordered by a rocky mountain wall on one side, and a steep cliff on the other. The stump of her leg, rubbed raw by her wooden prosthesis, was a painful mess. Still, she pressed on, not wanting to fall behind the group, consuming Benzedrine for additional energy. On the night of November 12th, at 6,000 feet, they reached a remote shepherd's hut, where they again stopped. Friday the next day would get them to 8,000 feet before the descent began to Spain. It was here that Juan informed them that they were now safely across the border, pointed the way down into the valley and towards the town of San Juan de las Abadesas, where they would catch the train to Barcelona. He took the rest of his fee and began retracing his steps, leaving the group to make the next 20 miles on their own. It took another day and night before the exhausted trio arrived at the train station in San Juan. It was still dark and they merely had to access the 5.45 a.m. local train to complete their escape. Unfortunately, after eluding all of the danger of the last few days, the fugitives were done in by the methodical local Spanish police force that was always on the lookout for anyone out of place this close to the border. When local paramilitaries confronted the trio as they waited, Virginia identified herself as an American tourist, sightseeing in the mountains but despite her reasonably good Spanish, all three were detained. The two men were promptly tossed into a fascist concentration camp, and Virginia wound up in a dungeon-like jail for women. Her situation was quite precarious. The Spanish government would think nothing of handing her over to the Nazis, especially if the Abwehr and Gestapo operating throughout the country figured out where she was. Fortunately, Virginia was able to smuggle out a message via a prisoner She befriended, who was cut loose only weeks after Virginia's arrival. The American consulate, once they received her coded message and whereabouts, negotiated for her release, which occurred in a matter of days. Virginia was quickly transported to the safety of the consulate and the relative luxury of a bath, a bed, and clean clothes. After only 48 hours of relaxation, Virginia composed a lengthy report for the SOE concerning her contacts back at Lyon, and also requested that they do everything possible to spring her fugitive companions, Gutman and Alibert. Her intention was to get to Britain and then return to France as quickly as possible, but the political reality of the Iberian Peninsula thwarted any rapid turnaround. It would take a month to to even reach her disembarkation point of Lisbon, where the BOAC maintained direct air service to London. It would take another month of keeping a low profile before the proper visas and ticket were obtained, and she reached the British capital on January 19, 1943. Greeted as a heroine at SOE headquarters, the revelations concerning many of her associates in Lyon were disturbing. The Gestapo had gone on an immediate rampage upon taking full control of the city, the task of rooting out the vast network that flourished under Vichy, given a head start by the information delivered by double agents like Robert Alesch. Among the detained were Germaine Guerin, who was not only imprisoned, but her apartment was ransacked, most likely by Alesch, who was fully aware of the gold and valuable art secreted within. Dr. Rousset was also arrested, but was not deported to Buchenwald for 12 months so that his interrogators could force him to tell them the location of the mysterious Limping Marie. Fortunately, her clandestine flight prevented any revelation about her whereabouts. Unfortunately for Garine Rousset, and others, it would not be until the Abwehr confirmed that Virginia Hall fled France via Lisbon that they gave up the chase and brutal interrogations. Germaine Guérin was ultimately packed off to the women's concentration camp of Ravensbrück. The facade of Vichy no longer hid the actual nature of the Nazi occupation. Originally forced out of the government for being too pro Nazi, Pierre Laval reobtained stature by helping to assist with the 1943 deportation of France's Jewish population, the only Nazi occupied country to actively aid in this process. Millions of French workers were continually sent to Germany and slave labor conditions in the Reich. SOE carelessness and the ruthless methods of the Gestapo ensured that many agents that were parachuted into the country were quickly captured and executed. Despite their willingness to send others into the extremely dangerous French territory, the SOE refused Virginia's request to return to action. Instead, they sent her to Madrid, ostensibly to coordinate escape routes for fugitives escaping from southern France. But her outsider status within the embassy and the boredom that ensued with a task that was nowhere near as challenging as her clandestine work in Lyon quickly compelled her to head back to London. She cooled her heels by spending six weeks receiving expert training in Morse code and radio transmission, her future assignment within the SOE still nebulous. In January of 1944, Virginia's intelligence career took an unexpected turn. The U.S. government, which had never had any kind of formal intelligence agency, was rapidly attempting to assemble an entity that was similar to Britain's SOE and mi 6 This new operation was named the Office of Strategic Services, and it was headed by William Wild Bill Donovan, an individual selected by President Roosevelt to coordinate the creation of an American intelligence operation. Designated only months before Pearl Harbor, Donovan initially was named Coordinator of Information, but with America's entry into World War II, his fledgling operation was absorbed into the military and renamed the Office of Strategic Services. Handicapped by resentment from the various branches of the military and hostility from J. Edgar Hoover, who felt that any such effort should fall under his authority, Donovan quickly needed to assemble a network of American espionage agents with boots on the ground before the inevitable invasion of Europe. Although Donovan's connections in the business and political world allowed him to recruit high-level journalists, business people, and even prominent artists to provide information, he was desperate to find bona fide espionage agents with actual experience, especially with knowledge of the current situation in France. The SOE had made it clear that Virginia was too well known to be sent back to occupied Europe. The OSS had no such objections. On March 21st, 1944. Only several months after returning to the relative safety of London, Virginia found herself headed for the coast of Brittany. A Royal Navy patrol boat was to deposit her and another agent, codenamed Aramis, on a remote spot on the northeastern French coast. Although excited to return to the fight, Virginia did concede that she needed to disguise her looks, as her photograph and description was widely accessible to German authorities, who had even granted her the code name of Artemis. Her hair was dyed gray and tied up in an unstylish bun. She added age to her face with makeup, highlighting wrinkles around the eyes and other facial features. Her loose-fitting clothes presented a poor, elderly peasant woman and also concealed a 32 caliber pistol. Her American code name was Diane, and she was charged with heading back to familiar southern French territory to help set up a new network of agents and safe houses that had been radically reduced by the Nazis. Technically, she reported to Aramis, as it was inconceivable that a male on such a mission would have a female supervisor— Virginia did not care about such bureaucracy. She was only intent on being as effective as possible. Accompanied with a wireless radio device, she was equipped to communicate directly with headquarters in London. The situation on the ground was already different from the France Virginia fled only months earlier. Full-fledged armed resistance, fueled by equipment dropped by the Allies, had broken out, with attacks on supply depots, railroads, and even German troops. The German response to such attacks was savage, with armored SS battalions frequently unleashing vicious and indiscriminate attacks on unarmed civilians in retaliation. Such behavior only strengthened French hostility to the German occupiers. Virginia first had to navigate via Paris by train to get to her destination. She successfully circumvented checkpoints and railroad stations, a seeming old peasant woman of no interest to the Gestapo. By then, she already had no use for her male counterpart, who whined constantly about a sprained ankle suffered during their beach landing. Luckily, they separated in Paris, with Virginia staying at a safe house she was already familiar with. Aramis only briefly accompanied her to the south of France, finding the rural area that Virginia felt most comfortable in, not to his liking. He quickly returned to Paris, leaving her to operate on her own, which she preferred. She then acquired a residence in a tiny hut, working with a local farmer, delivering milk from his nearby farm. It was the perfect cover, with the radio hidden in the attic. She not only transmitted information, she also began attempts to organize locals into an actual fighting unit, with such groups known as the Maquis, fighting openly in other areas of France. She helped her farmer benefactor's mother make more cheese, which she disingenuously offered for sale to any German troops she encountered on the roads surrounding the tiny village she inhabited. This cover was only brief when several SOE operatives that Virginia had recently connected with were possibly arrested, knowing that they might reveal her whereabouts. She quickly fled back to Paris. Within days, she was on the move again to cosne sur loire in central france a territory with a willing populace but no armaments to engage in any sophisticated destruction again she was able to obtain a cover as an elderly shepherd her radio coordinating weapons drops into the region it was the spring of 1944 france on edge as the country waited for the inevitable invasion from across the channel operation overlord the landing at normandy officially began on june 6th 1944 But in the 48 hours leading up to this operation, hundreds of coded messages were sent via the French channel of the BBC as a prearranged signal to attack and harass the German occupying force as much as possible. Like hundreds of others scattered across France, Virginia heard the words that signified a call to action. Local French resistance fighters were astonished when this individual, a woman no less, was able to repeatedly have armaments and supplies dropped in quantities necessary to promote an armed revolt. During this time period, Virginia was constantly on the move. German counterintelligence used radio detection bands that could pinpoint the location of an active transmitter and also started using specialized detection aircraft, that could assess the wide-open French countryside for a similar presence. Virginia not only had to evade capture, she also had to manage the various factions of French resistance who were split along various political identities and persuasions. Most already had an eye towards France's post-war future and were hostile to orders from someone who was not French and female as well. They were willing to take as much armaments and supplies as she could provide, but frequently ignored any advice or directives, especially as Virginia's strong will occasionally rubbed the Maquis hierarchy the wrong way. Fortunately, she was able to identify units who valued her experience and were more focused on fighting the German presence. Throughout the hot Loire region where she operated, coordinated attacks now focused on actual German convoys and stealthy ambushes that resulted in fatalities By August of 1944, local partisans had either killed or forced the surrender of numerous strongholds of German troops who were cut off from resupply because of the deteriorating Nazi situation throughout the country. German authority in the Haute Loire was eradicated two days before the Allies entered Paris, this feat accomplished without any formal Allied military presence. In September of 1944, the OSS parachuted in two officers— Henry Riley and Paul Goyot, to help Virginia try to extend some sense of organization to the various factions in the area. More confusion resulted from the re-establishment of a provisional French government under Charles de Gaulle, who dismissed any resistance factions as amateurs who now needed to acquiesce to his authority. The gradual withdrawal of the Nazi occupation resulted in frequent reprisals against random civilians which made any encounter with the enemy extremely dangerous. But by the autumn of 1944, the German withdrawal deteriorated into a full-blown collapse. Although they had assisted in pinning down troops that might have been deployed elsewhere, the partisans of the Maquis would be replaced by the Allied military that rapidly captured or expelled any remaining French Nazi presence. Virginia was notified that she was to disband any groups under her influence. Most of these men immediately enlisted in the Free French effort that would help with the invasion of Germany itself. Virginia and her two OSS counterparts were ordered to Paris. Having spent the previous weeks in a requisitioned empty chateau with little military activity, she became involved romantically with Paul Gaillot, who was eight years her junior. Paul had actually been born in Paris, and much of his family remained there, although the family reunion was dampened by the recent death of his father from cancer. He rejoined Virginia in London in October of 1944, the two openly associating as a couple, when the OSS decided that it needed to verify whether fanatical Nazi elements were actually preparing to continue the fighting from a purported alpine redoubt, honeycombed with tunnels, intricate defenses, and the remnants of the German military, Paul and Virginia were selected for eventual infiltration into the Tyrol region of Austria. Their mission was to ascertain whether such a defense was actually going to take place. Although both individuals were deployed to Italy to prepare for this mission, it would never occur. With the death of Hitler and the complete capitulation of Italy and Nazi Germany, the Alpine redoubt was clearly a fantasy. Paul and Virginia then returned to Paris, where she was notified that she was to be decorated with the Distinguished Service Cross, the first American female civilian to ever receive the award. Wild Bill Donovan felt it appropriate that the presentation should occur in the Oval Office, with the medal awarded personally by President Truman, But Virginia adamantly refused such a public spectacle, wary of what this type of publicity would do to any future aspirations for additional clandestine operation. She retrieved her DSC citation without ceremony in London. She also was not prepared to leave Europe with so many questions concerning both her resistance counterparts and her adversaries. Intent on discovering their fate, she returned to Lyon. The city was completely destroyed by both Allied bombing and German demolition of bridges as they withdrew. Surprisingly, both Germain Garin and Dr. Jean Rousset survived Ravensbrück and Buchenwald, respectively. But they both recounted the fates of the many other agents who were rounded up and executed or packed off to Germany, never to return. Any of those who were fortunate enough to return usually came back to a home that was completely looted of anything valuable, right down to the plumbing and electrical fixtures. All of the gold and artworks in Germain Garin's formerly sumptuous apartment were removed, and all concerned had a good idea as to who was responsible. The Paris police were already on the trail of Robert Alesch. Having been tipped off that he had stolen property from many of his victims, they went to his apartment only to find his sister still there. Some of the property he had stolen was also present, but he had vanished. The investigation proceeded to the French town where he had served as a priest, his work for the Abwehr now apparent. Alesch attempted to blend in in newly liberated Brussels, and upon hearing that he was a wanted man, he turned himself into American counterintelligence, offering up information about the Abwehr in exchange for his freedom. Already briefed by Virginia Hall and others, the Americans quickly handed him over to the French. Denying everything, Alesch put off his trial until May of 1948, his death sentence carried out by firing squad on February 25, 1949. Many of the members of the Vichy government suffered retribution as well. Pierre Laval and Philippe Pétain were also condemned Although in light of his World War I heroics, Patan's sentence was commuted to life. He was confined to a small island off of Brittany, and upon his death in 1951, was unceremoniously buried there. Instead of the magnificent resting place previously prepared at the site of his greatest military victory at Verdun, before the Marshal's Nazi collaboration, Laval was executed by firing squad. Virginia Hall returned with Paul to the United States. After spending much of her adult life in Europe and having endured many stressful years, her reintegration to American life was bound to be stressful. Her mother's hostility to Paul and lack of any definite professional direction made this even more difficult. Still, two weeks after Virginia's return, it was her mother who accompanied her to a private ceremony in Washington, where Wild Bill Donovan formally presented her with the Distinguished Service Cross— Donovan already knew that the OSS was about to be disbanded by President Truman, the organization victim of both politics, as Donovan was a prominent Republican and undermining at the hands of J. Edgar Hoover. Virginia got a paltry check for vacation pay. Paul and thousands of others were cut loose without a dime. The reality of the Cold War necessitated a reappraisal of America's intelligence capability, Truman ordered the creation of the CIA, and Virginia Hall was quickly hired as one of its first female employees. Her linguistic ability resulted in an assignment to Italy where she analyzed the political climate and provided intelligence to Washington. But the desk job bored her after her much more exciting wartime exploits, and Paul did not want to move to Italy. In 1948, she resigned and returned to live in New York with Paul their official marital status still unclear. She was employed producing broadcasts for Radio Free Europe in an organization fronted by the CIA. With the communist threat looming larger, she was offered a position at CIA headquarters that necessitated her return to Washington, D.C. To avoid antagonizing her mother, she officially lived apart from Paul, behavior that seems at odds with a woman who would literally stare down the Gestapo. Unfortunately, her unwillingness to be posted overseas limited her advancement in the CIA. Her health was poor, the result of the grueling war years, an unhealthy lifestyle of heavy drinking, typical of those involved in her profession. Paul had forsaken the public sector entirely, now the proprietor and chef of a French restaurant. In 1957, Virginia ignored her mother's perspective and finally married Paul, Her career at the agency continued to grind forward with occasional promotions and salary increases, but she remained in the background, out of place in an operation dominated by men. Her OSS experiences became more and more of a distant memory, and she was shunted aside, perhaps a blessing after the very public fiasco of the Bay of Pigs. Hall's employment continued until 1966 and her mandatory retirement age of 60. She and her husband bought a house with 30 acres in the rural village of Barnesville, Maryland. With the restaurant now closed, the couple were intent on decorating their house and enjoying some personal stability after so many turbulent years. There, she and her husband would live a quiet life, her health deteriorating until she was virtually incapacitated by her amputated limb, most of her time spent at home reading and no doubt reflecting on her multifaceted service and career. Her health necessitated hospitalization on many occasions, and she passed away on July 8, 1982. Her husband Paul died five years later. Virginia Hall was avoided the Croix de Guerre, the British MBE, and the Distinguished Service Cross, making her the most decorated American female civilian of World War II. An avid reader and gifted writer of intelligence reports, she nevertheless always declined offers to publish her memoirs and refused all interviews. Now 75 years after her wartime exploits, through books and motion pictures, her identity has emerged as one of the many unsung heroes of the clandestine war against the Nazis. Her longtime obscurity might actually be one of her greatest accomplishments, underlining her understanding that the truly effective secret agent never receives credit and always remains anonymous. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Virginia Hall. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books A Woman of No Importance by Sonia Purnell, and The Wolves at the Door, The True Story of America's Greatest Female Spy by Judith Pearson. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, Please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.